coming to you from Podcast Detroit. It's Heard, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes. And for future episode information and additional content, head over to herdpodcast.com and follow us on Instagram at herdpodcast. Hey guys, welcome to Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. Thanks for listening. Tonight, I'm with Dave. Hi. Jason. I'm back. And uh, guys, we got to thank George Morris for that fantastic theme music. Amazing theme music. I'm in the mood. Herd. <clears throat> uh, tonight, we have... behind. We have joining us uh, Mark Rosati from, he's a culinary director from Shake Shack. Uh, he'll be joining us a little later in the show. Uh, Shake Shack is opening uh, on Thursday, February 23rd. We've arrived. It, it's, it's a pretty big deal, guys. It's, it's a V big deal. Um, I felt like a VIP when I was there. I was, yeah, I was like this burger. I'm like a prince. <laughs> so, I'm like uh, a burger prince. So, I, I you know, it. it we were lucky enough to be uh, it, uh, treated to the uh, friends and family uh, event today that they had down at uh, uh, the 660 Woodward location in Detroit. And um, they, uh, let's talk about it. Let's, uh, initial impressions. Um, what was it, uh, your first experiences at Shake Shack? Yeah, it was mine. I'd not been. I, I stayed at the Chicago Athletic, and they have one there, but it was like a line up the door, and so I, I'd never experienced it before. So yeah, it was. I was impressed. Yeah, my my first uh, visit as well to any of the locations. I wasn't sure what to expect, but I was I was also impressed. I had been to the one in Chicago, uh, the one near Italy. I'm not sure what the location uh, exactly is, but uh, I went. I happened to be walking late at night, and there was. Uh, it was busy, but there definitely wasn't a line. So I was able to try uh, Shake Shack back then. It was very good. Um, I did also uh, walk through their original location um, in New York. Uh, that location had a line about, I want to say, a block and a half long. Um, That's in the park, right? Yeah. 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 Um, and so one of the stats that I read, uh, which I thought was fascinating, was the, the average yearly revenue for one of these places is $4 million. Jesus. Um, it's incredible. And, uh, you know, all of us run businesses. And, uh, I, I mean, just think of the volume you have to do yeah. um, on burgers. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and, you know, average tickets, all these types of things, and the turnover you have to, to uh, get. To, to get. Um, with this Detroit location, we're, you know, the, the setup of this of the store itself is kind of it's weird 
it's nuanced. I mean, you know, it's it's a, it's an uh, it's Jason and I were talking about this as well earlier today. It's a weird location in that it's not driver friendly in any way, shape, or form. They are in the heart of downtown Detroit, so their lunch traffic is going to be bananas. But it's not. I'm not going to go there for dinner because no. there's nowhere to park. Parking just is impossible in that area. I don't know. It's interesting. I don't know. It's interesting. It, it, it's one of those things. And obviously, I, I, ticket times have to be, uh, you know, uh, very precise yeah. when you're dealing with lunch crowds um, in the realm of, what, five, five minutes? Right. Um, and uh, I'm sure, I'm certain, you know, today was a, a test run. Um, so, you know, they, they were very clear about it being 15 to 20 minutes and that was fine. We didn't wait. No, we, we, we waited maybe 10 minutes. Yeah. Really? Maybe, maybe a little more. Yeah. yeah. We were there at like 2.30 though. So maybe we missed the, uh, missed the rush. Yeah. But at the there same time. There was a pretty brisk crowd that was yeah, coming in. Yeah, right it was decent. I mean, at the same time, you know, the, the burger is, you know, eight bucks. A shake is six or seven bucks. Fries are three bucks. So, you know, you're, you're in the $15 range pretty quickly. Yeah, and and I guess uh, for, from a value perspective, do you think that that uh, what was it was it worth it? That was one of the uh, well, yeah. We talk about price versus value for the taste. I love burgers, and who are they competing against? I mean, your other options if you're right there in the city is you know Wahlburgers, uh, fat you know Five Guys. If you're gonna go to like a fast casual place like that, maybe you're gonna go to Checker Bar if you want to like nail a burger and fries. Maybe and you're gonna go to Townhouse if you're gonna look for a little bit. Of, yeah maybe higher, but, um, you know, I thought it was uh pretty good. I would go back for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It was nice. It was good. It's good. Food. What did you think of the service? I mean, the service was, you know, it was, I could get, they were just almost like still figuring out how to work point of sale systems. Yeah. Um, which is fine. I mean, you know, it's the first day they're open. We don't, I generally speaking, I never go to a new restaurant for the first month that they're open because they're going to work out their kinks in that first month. And like, I'd rather have a, experience when they've figured that shit out as opposed to you know the first day when i'm like oh they have no idea what they're doing i'm going to judge them on this yeah you know? i mean the service at the register was fine uh, you know it's not like we had very many much interaction with people on the floor you well just, no yeah it's like you Taco step Bell. up there it's yeah like, I mean, you order your thing i guess when i buzz you when you're ready and yeah i mean they're it's like enlightened hospitality they talk about you know the group talks about hospitality and certainly everybody there was nice but in terms of the number of interaction, the interaction point between the consumer and the and the workers was there was one, None. one right? Yeah, I mean one. Yeah. Know, one. So one of the things I do uh, occasionally is I'll bring my when it's appropriate I'll bring my three year old to, to events like this and um, to kind of gauge uh, service. And um, I did notice that everybody on the floor, uh, at least at least four or five people. And uh, two people behind the uh, behind the counter all engage with him hmm. very nice. specifically. Yeah, um, and uh, you know, I, uh, it got down to even maybe a GM or a, uh, one of the managers came over and asked him how he was doing. <laughs> hmm. And you know, then he asked me, but it was more it was more about him. And as a parent, um, that's kind of endearing. And, and it might be a tactic; it might not be. If even if it is, it's a good one, right? Sure. We have to yeah. go back and see. I mean, it was friends and family day as well. The whole focus is on everything going on there. Not to say that they wouldn't, you know, replicate that experience another time. But, but let me throw this out there. If you're with your son and you're like, I want a burger and he's like, I want McDonald's. 
and you're like, I don't want McDonald's, I want something better. Well, now if he doesn't like Shake Shack, then that you're cut off at the knees right there, right? Like you're not going to go there because he's going to be like, I'm, I'm not suggesting you feed your kid McDonald's, but you know what I mean. Right. Like if they if he doesn't if he didn't have a good experience, you can't even come back. So maybe it's tactic, maybe not. I mean, they're they're pretty smart. Hospitality, the new Happy Meal. Absolutely. <laughs> Boom. That's that's great. Um, all right, guys. So we're going to take a quick break, and uh, we'll be right back. We'll talk about some Yellowstone bourbon whiskey. Fantastic. Welcome back to Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. Uh, let's talk about some beverage. I have in my hand Yellowstone uh, bourbon whiskey, uh, bottle number 886. Uh, Jason, talk about it. I could talk about that. It's bottle 896 out of uh, approximately 7,000. So last uh, last time we were talking uh, a little bit about the um, Rebel Yell, talking about non-distiller producers. This is another uh, variation on that. So uh, Yellowstone is made by a company called Limestone Branch Distillery, um, one of the seventh generation Beam uh, uh, family member, Stephen Beam, kind of running this distillery. They've uh, built this brand off sourcing a blend of uh, two whiskeys, a 12-year and a seven-year. And what they've done with this uh, one is then gone on to finish those uh, blended whiskeys into uh, 28 wine barrels that have been toasted, not charred. So um, this is really interesting because we're just kind of, um, you know, we're this is an allocated bottle. Um, we got uh, a couple of these at the bar. Um, it's a premium price point. A lot of the brands these days are coming out with uh, limited edition. It's really just a race to see who can produce as many limited edition bottles as possible, try to capture all of the consumer, you know, excitement about bourbon. So we're just going to, you know, sipping on this and kind of getting a feel for it. Um, I want to say this bottle is probably around a hundred bucks on the state minimum. So a considerable jump up from what we've been trying, but um, that could be maybe because of the marketing and the, the limited edition. And Yellowstone was a distillery before. Yellowstone is one of those old brands. So yeah. that's kind of going along with the same marketing idea of, uh, of taking old brands and resurrecting yeah, them. Yeah, the resurrection. And taxing yeah, you for it's, that. Uh, it's nice, though. I, I I really like it. I didn't know the price point, but I was drinking some at the bar the other day, and I yeah. thought, you know, it's pretty nice. A little unique, you know, a little different. Not not quite um, what I've come to expect. I quite like it. Nice flavor profile. So uh, this, this idea of this race to create these limited edition, uh, higher price point, bourbons uh it seems to run parallel with the idea of uh the craft beer industry doing the same thing with these limited release and these uh events that they these large events or it's really hard to get particular beers um and so, sometimes I mean, more times now because it's happening so often the product is not worth <laughs> the the and not saying this is one of those products but are there is this very much buyer beware in in the sense of like is there a lot of stuff coming out just flooding the market and there's no sense of what's yes completely i mean there there's a huge there are, uh, everybody's sort of bitten by the pappy bug right so everybody's trying all the distilleries are trying to recreate that that you know world class brand that you can charge you know hundreds of dollars for thousands on the secondary market it's based on scarcity based on scarcity based on some some you know uh reputation or or concept you know that may or may not be true 
And, uh, you know, we're seeing it a lot. I mean, there are some that are better than others. Obviously, Four Roses, which is a phenomenal distillery, puts out some really amazing products every year. Um, Wild Turkey, more or less, that's true. Uh, but then we've got other companies like Diageo that are putting out these this Orphan Barrel series, for example, which is basically just finding old whiskey and putting it in a bottle and charging a premium for it without much regard for whether or not it's really good. The secondary market seems to sort of sort that out and decide which ones, um, which one, and that's not infallible either, but, you know, they certainly decide which ones are, are worth it and which ones aren't to a certain extent. Yeah, the secondary market certainly is not immune from the animal spirits that can uh, can sort of like drive this herd mentality. The Kentucky Owl, I believe, recently is kind of a example of that. But this is interesting because uh, um, as opposed to the ones that Dave was referencing, it was, it's one thing for established distilleries, the, the large uh, whiskey houses that have been around for a long time. So Buffalo Trace just announced they're going to have a 25-year-old Van Winkle. Who knows if it's something they planned or something they found. You know, Wild Turkey, Four Roses. Um, you would expect that they uh, can be, they have producing this whiskey and they're marketing things that they're proud of. But here is sort of a different example of just a, a company that hasn't even been around that long who is buying whiskey, you know, applying a finishing process to it and then just basically saying, it's limited edition uh, because of the labeling and kind of the marketing around it. So it's a question of, do you trust the brand? I mean, Four Roses has a great brand, right? If their master distiller comes out and they say, we're releasing a limited edition Four Roses, I think that uh, most people would be pretty excited about that based on the track record that they have and, you know, the the trust, the relationship they have with their consumers. So this is interesting because they really have no... Um, they have none of that, no background, right? But it's a, it's one of the beam. It's a beam family yeah. member that's beam is behind it, yeah. and you know that's the, they're using that relationship to yeah. actually source the whiskey and resurrecting the old brand. So I mean, you know, there's definitely some marketing here, you know, going into this pretty heavily. I mean, it's a nice package. It's a good looking bottle, you know. Um, but at the same time, it's it's actually I think it's pretty nice whiskey. I mean, yeah. again, I didn't necessarily know it was a hundred bucks a bottle when yeah. I was drinking it at the bar <laughs> the other day. So maybe that would have changed my opinion, but I, you know it's nice. I think it's pretty good. It's, it's good stuff. So uh, as a as a consumer, right? Like, uh, I go into a liquor store, and, and this is just going to be on the shelf, right? Like it's, potentially. I mean, I'm not going to know it's a Beam family whiskey, right? Do, is there somewhere on the bottle that says that? Like, yeah, his name. It, uh, he signs oh, his name on okay. there. Also, okay. I mean, not every store. You know, a, a product like this is allocated, which means that you've got to do a certain volume, have a certain business uh, with the with the companies to be able to get this. You're selling some of their other products. Um, they've got a couple lower end brands, 1849, David Nicholson, I believe, is one of their oh, brands as that well. Oh, is the same one? Oh, yeah. wow. Okay, cool. Um, cool. Pretty sure. Um, so, and they have a they have a lower grade Yellowstone uh, as well. So th- this would be something probably that if you're going to your a uh, regular liquor store guys that you've been have a relationship with, you know, he'd probably hand sell you on this. So you'd probably hear the story if you weren't already aware of it and be like, Oh, there's that thing. And you know, um, I don't know if it's sitting on the table here, but the packaging, it comes in a tube, looks really nice black tube. And they certainly presentation is there, but uh, you know, some guys these days, um, the whiskey bug gets you and you've got a ton of, things at your house it's not like um probably i would think my grandpa has you know canadian club or 
yeah. you know, the same, he drinks the same thing for all his life and, you know, always refilling the same bottle. But these days it's very common for people to have home bars with a large selection. So I know the guy at Keiko's was telling me the other day, it's even hard for them if customers have been coming in for a long time. And sometimes people come in, they just want something new. Like yeah. they've already had a lot of things. And so I think that's why these companies are really trying to give people new things to spend their money on. And that's why I really support the uh, the on-premise idea of like, you know, the, the importance of having a good bar that you go to where you don't have to commit to a $100 bottle of whiskey. You can come in and have a $10 pour of whiskey and be like, oh, I like that. That's great. And now I'm going to go to my, my liquor store and, and look for it and take their recommendation, you know, as opposed to just, you know, making the plunge and spending all that money on one bottle. And, and further, if they don't have, using Yellowstone as an example, if, they, if your liquor store doesn't have that, and you, the consumer then says, could you order this? And it kind Com- of completely. And, and then you're, you know, expanding other people's knowledge as well, right? Completely. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. Assuming you can get it. But yeah, I mean, yeah, generally speaking, that's entirely true. Um, yeah, I, I, th- I think this is all very interesting. It, it, it's, it can all be very confusing too. Um, th- there's, I, I've looked at the bourbon section of, of a liquor store and, um, have felt, uh, quite overwhelmed. <laughs> I mean, it's almost meant to be, you know, they're, they're, these, uh, distilleries are putting out these labels, label after label after label. Um, and they don't necessarily want you to know it's all from the same place because there's the marketing angle of it. Um, but you know, a lot of it's, you know, most of the bottles in the shelf are from the same couple, same few places yeah. in Kentucky. Just like, uh, Sazerac, uh, you know, through Buffalo Trace has an interest in the, like the Bowman brothers thing. Mm-hmm. It's hard to say, you know, Heaven Hill may have an interest in this company right. that we don't know. That we don't they're, know. About. You know, it's they're the whiskey that they could sell in their own brands. They may be charging a premium to these or, you know, getting a premium for their product right. by, uh, you know, creating these, uh, sub, you know, offshoot companies. It's hard to say, but so this uh, is, this is beam black label finished in a yeah. <laughs> bottle for 90 bucks. Toasted like wine it. barrel. Yeah. I like it. All right, so we're going to take another break. We'll be right back with Mark Rosati, the culinary director of Shake Shack. Yes. yes. Welcome back to Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. On the line right now, we have Mark Rosati, the culinary director of Shake Shack. Hey, Mark. How you doing today? I'm awesome. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for coming to Detroit. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh it's really a pleasure to be here. Um uh, this is my uh second trip and uh we're opening our Shake Shack finally here on Thursday. I couldn't be more excited to be returning. That's fantastic. Thank you for having us out today, by the way. We all made it down there um for the friends and family preview. Um very enjoyable, so thank you for that. Oh, my pleasure. So um, let's start with the the subject of Detroit. Um, how has the Detroit Open uh, been different than some any other city? How how is uh is this a how is it special? And and feel free to be honest. We do business in yeah. Detroit. We get it. I have to say, um, what we really pride ourselves on doing anytime we open in a new city is spending a lot of time on the ground to really understand what makes the city tick. And uh, for my end, the Connor end of the company, um, I was completely surprised and blown away by the food scene here. Um, in New York City right now, where I'm from, we have uh, Detroit pizza kind of making a big pop. And I had it a few times in New York. I thought, okay, it's kind of interesting. I kind of 
I kind of get it. And then when I came here for the first time, I actually tried it at Louie's and Buddy's. I, I, I thought I knew what it was all about. I was completely surprised how delicious and unique it was. And I feel it does fit into all the great different styles of pizza around this country of ours. Um, and that was just the tip of the iceberg. As I started to go deeper down, I found a lot of other unique food styles here that, you know, I feel like I, I went back to New York City and told my team, like, Detroit is so delicious and there's nothing else quite like it, but I cannot wait for us to open a restaurant there and become part of that community. And, and so I, I noticed um, on the menu uh, today that there is, in the, especially in the concretes, you uh, used a lot of local ingredients. The, the one uh, had Bon 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 chocolate, uh, Rocky's peanuts, and then the other had a, a sister pie. Uh, featured in yes it? yes is is this something that uh obviously this is special to detroit is this something you do in every market in every city we try to we try to and as we keep growing in a city uh we don't look at it say like uh us coming to say um detroit particularly but we try to make sure each neighborhood we open in has a special feel and a special story that is inspired uh by that community so on my first trip here um I had a friend that's from Detroit, and they said, hey, you really need to check out Sister Pie. I think you're going to like their style. And the minute I walked in, I loved, I loved the shop. I loved the aesthetic. The people there were so kind. And, of course, the pies were delicious. I actually got five slices because I liked it so much. I wanted to take it back to New York for my team to try it. And uh, Bon 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 was another connection through a friend, actually a friend that works at Shake Shack in uh, New York. She said, my friend. Alex uh, has this amazing chocolate company, and she's doing really fun things. I think you should check her out. Yeah, and I really Alex is amazing. Yeah. She really is, and she's, she's got such a great, warm personality. And when I went into her store and actually saw her style of bonbons, it was so unique and original. And, of course, the flavors delivered that I was like, oh, it would be, be a pleasure to work with her. And from start to finish, she's the one that started to say, you know, I'm very much a newer business in the city. You know, I have my own unique style. But she's like, Rockies, these guys have been roasting amazing nuts for such a long time. They're friends of mine. What do you think about working with them too? So the idea of incorporating something that's maybe older in Detroit with a newer business and getting something delicious in between, I mean, there are not too many cities where we can tell that story. And at the end of the day, I think it really uh, embodies the culinary scene that I've discovered in Detroit. But at the same time, it's something so simple and delicious in our frozen custard. Very cool. Um, so the uh, let's let's talk about the burgers. So the the the, the thing I noticed today, it, it, it's a flat pressed burger, right? But yes. it, it yep. remained juicy, and there was even some pink left in it, which which I thought was very impressive. Um, other other <laughs> burgers that I've had in that vein have always been kind of dry um and and lose their juiciness um how 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 are you guys able to do that you know that that style of cooking burgers um we were inspired by the burger stands that kind of grew up in america around the 1950s at the same time as automobile culture started to take root and the idea back in the day was you know you buy your hot rod and you want to show it off so where do you go you go to these burger stands, you could park outside and you could sit on the roof of your car and eat a burger and meet your friends. And back during that time, 
they popularized what they call the smashed and griddled style of cooking burgers, where instead of cooking it on open flame, you cook it on a, a flat top griddle on very, very high heat and smash the burger. We actually have form our burgers into what looks like a puck. And then we, we use spatulas to smash it into the griddle surface. And what that does is it creates this instantaneous sear on the meat that locks in the juices. So while it is a thinner cooked burger, it is keeping all that flavor and all that juice and liquid inside. But what it's also doing is it's creating more surface area that's getting more charred and more caramelized. So at the same time, you're creating more flavor than if you had not smashed that patty. So it kind of works on a few different levels. And it's just us kind of paying attention to the different details of what our burger grind is, uh, the temperatures we're cooking it at, and how thick we smash it, that we've kind of found this sweet spot where we can create everything we want, which we think is the ideal burger for us, is, is thin, crispy on the outside. But again, it has to be very flavorful and juicy on the inside. And we, we definitely like to cook our burgers medium. We feel like that's the perfect amount of moisture on the inside. Do you, I have a question. Do you, uh, so when you enter a market, like you're in a, you come to the Detroit market, uh, do you spend any time or how much time do you spend looking at the other burger places in the areas? I mean, do you worry about that at all or you choose your location and you're just ready to roll it out? We, we choose our location and, uh, we like to just kind of be who we are. And we think, um, you know, again, we, we have our own unique style of cooking burgers that we're known for. Um, and when we started about 12 years ago in New York City, at the time, that was a very serious burger market where you had a lot of different guys um, doing their different styles. And what we actually found was when a different guy with a different style would open up, it would kind of reignite burger mania in New York City. And it wasn't just a new person that, got all the, the glory from that, but everyone just in general was like, yeah, let's go eat burgers. And we felt like everyone that did a different style, we all did well. It was like the idea of all boats rising with the tide. And when I came to Detroit, um, I have a friend that uh, loves hamburgers. He travels the country. He writes about burgers, makes movies. He told me there's a place in um, Detroit they had to go to called Mott's Burger. Mm-hmm. And uh Talk about talk about like a, a burger throwback to the 1950s. Like these guys are exactly what I was talking about earlier, where they're they're taking burgers, they're smashing them on a hot griddle. What I like about what they do is they add onions to the top of the griddle before they put the patty on top. So they kind of smash the meat into the onions and create this kind of caramelized onion, caramelized meat flavor, and they serve slider styles. So I feel just in general, if you if you like burgers and you like variety. To live in a city like this, where there are a lot of great burgers, and then the more people come in, but they have different complementary styles, I feel it's just a win for anyone that loves hamburgers. That's me. So I'm I'm excited. Sign me up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean the, the Matzah's burger is. Uh, we've got a few of those places left, and that that whole onion. I mean, unfortunately, most of those patties are not uh, medium anymore. But uh, yeah, they're, they're just yeah. They're, it's kind of a, a smash of uh, onions and. Uh, and burger, which kind of inspired the maybe the White Castle kind of vibe, but absolutely, know. absolutely, and to kind of go there, and I think the original owners, uh, it's, it's still family owned, and just hearing those guys talk about, you know, how the burger scenes changed over the years through their eyes, but also like talk about, you know, how the place is founded, their style of cooking. Um, I don't really fancy myself a burger geek, but I think in that minute, I was a burger geek, loving every minute of talking history of hamburgers, especially in Detroit. 
can we talk about the uh, the fries for a second? Um, the <laughs> for sure. The so they're, we, they're crinkle cut. Um, and I, I read that there is there was a moment where you guys went from crinkle cut to hand cut, and then ended up going back to crinkle cut, right? Uh, yes, yes. Um, that was actually a very uh, fun, interesting learning experience for our company in general. Um, the reason we did that, we, we opened Shake Shack, uh, the, the original one, 12 years ago in New York City with crinkle cuts. And the reason we did that was we tried all these different types of fries back then. And at the end of the day, we kept coming back to the crinkle cuts because we felt they had the nostalgic value. I know when I was going to uh, elementary school, um, it would not be uncommon with like fish stick day or hot dog day to get a side of a uh, crinkle cut fries. So I definitely had that, that attachment, but I never really had a great one when I was growing up in school. So we came across the, a, what I would consider a great version of crinkle cuts. And the more we tried different styles, we learned two things. We learned the crinkle cut because of those grooves and ridges, it created more surface area per fry. So when you cooked it, it got crispier than the other fries. And the other thing that we loved was because of those grooves, the crinkle cut picked up ketchup and cheese sauce better than any other fry. So we were kind of we were kind of sold on the idea right away, and we thought it would be fun. And we opened Shake Shack. Uh, it became very popular, and the crinkle became synonymous with our brand. But for the longest time, we were saying to ourselves, we grind our beef fresh every day. We prep our lettuce and tomato in-house fresh every day. We're making our custard in-house every day. But we have these frozen fries. And our company, uh, we're born out of fine dining in New York City. The person who founded Shake Shack uh, has been in the fine dining game in New York City with a lot of restaurants for over 30 years. Yeah, Dan, we're very Danny much Meyer. We're, we're familiar with Danny his Meyer. work. Yeah. Yes. So Danny, uh, you know, all of his other restaurants, there were a few that actually had French fries uh, during lunchtime, and they were made fresh. And we're like, well, why, why are we doing this? This is the only thing on our menu that's frozen. We, we, need, to, we need to make a fresh-cut fry. We went down that road, and the fry we wound up making was a double blanched fry that we were doing in all of our Shake Shacks. And it was, it was just a tremendous amount of work. And it became such a burden on our teams because right when we thought we had the method for doing the perfect double-cooked French fry, the next day we'd come into the Shake Shack and the fries would be limp and, and really dark. We could not figure out what had happened. We, we looked at our procedures. We checked potatoes. And it turned out that there are just times in the year where, where French fries or potatoes, the natural sugar inside of the potato can spike. And once it spikes, you're not going to get a crisp blonde potato. You're going to get a limp one that's burnt on the outside almost. And with all the science available to us, there's no way of reconditioning sugars once they spike. And we were doing everything. We were flying out to farms, contracting potato farmers to try to find, say, listen, I want you to check the sugars in all these potatoes before you send it to us. And they're looking at us like we're crazy. But it's like, okay, okay, we'll do it. We get the potatoes in New York. We say, okay, we got to figure it out. And then the sugars would be spiking again because we realized the railroad car that took the potatoes from the West Coast of America to the East Coast maybe stopped one night and they didn't have the heat on in the car so the potatoes froze and the sugar spiked. So with all this happening and us trying to figure out how to make the perfect fry, we were also opening in London that year. 
so I had flown out there many a times, and there's a very famous chef, Heston Blumenthal, who just is well-regarded for his culinary prowess, but also his scientific approach to cooking. And I have to say, with all the fries I had during my research, his were the best. They were always crunchy, perfectly colored, and just a pleasure to eat. But then there was one time I went over there on a trip and discovered he did not have the fries on the menu. So I asked him by what had happened. They go, oh, we actually, we take them off for three months out of the year. I'm like, well, why is that? They go, well, we serve mashed potatoes because three months out of the year, the sugars in the potatoes are so high, <laughs> we can't make great French fries. I'm like, wait a minute. You guys are like science buffs and, you know, all this technique and you guys can't figure it out? I started feeling really good about myself after that because I thought I just didn't get it. But to hear Heston's team say, listen, there's nothing you can do when a potato has high sugar to the point where they decide just to take them off the menu altogether than try to even figure out how to tame that. So with that knowledge, I had gone back to my company and we had a long, hard talk and look and we said, you know what? When they're good, they're good, but that's only 50% of the time. A fresh cut fry just does not work for our operations and our consistency. And that was the time we actually made the switch back nationally to crinkle cuts. And the funny thing is, that year, the most liked Instagram on our uh, profile, we had over uh, 200,000 followers, was just a picture of our old crinkle cut fries saying, coming back in November. <laughs> That's so great. our That's fans great. had spoken out loudly, and uh, we, we listened. Yeah, it seemed like it worked we out. Had for, to go, seemed like it worked out for you guys. <laughs> It did, but the, actually there is a silver lining in the story for us, and that was we actually had to add double fryer capacity to all of our restaurants through this double blanching method. So we had doubled our fryers, and now we had went back to our original French fry, which was a lot easier to cook, but yet we had these two extra fryers, and we didn't know what to do with them. And that was the same time we started to say to ourselves, well, what if we added a fried chicken sandwich to the menu? And we did a year later, which came out to really high critical praise. And to be honest, that would have never happened. We would not have known how to figure it out if we had not first gone down the path of trying to make fresh French fries in-house. Oh, that's fascinating. <laughs> well, I had that yeah. uh, I had that fried chicken sandwich today, and I can uh, say, you know, it's a happy accident. Good job. Really, really <laughs> nice. I'm glad you appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> But how often do you travel now? It sounds with all the all the international locations, and I see you've got uh, quite a few more openings planned for this year. What, what's your uh, What's your schedule like? Daily life like? Yeah, there there is a bit of an uh, ebb and flow to my schedule. Um, there's times uh, the past couple of months I've just been happily uh, living in New York City, uh, but there are also times when we start to get busy. Uh, for instance, last year we had opened uh, in Tokyo and uh, Korea. So there's a lot of localization, kind of how I came out to Detroit. Um, this, th these trips are easier domestically because where our beef is coming from, our butchers, that's a pretty, pretty well-developed um, uh, bunch of partners that we have across the country. So opening for the big stuff, like the burgers, the buns, the hot dogs, we have that figured out. But now go to Japan where we try to do the same thing. We try to localize as much as we can. We want our burgers to be ground fresh. We want our uh, frozen custard be made in Japan, our French fries coming from that region. So that takes almost like 
uh, a year of work in advance of opening. So for uh, last year, I spent more time outside New York City than I did inside. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, again, it, it's one of those things that as we grow, we are stickers for detail. We want to make sure if uh, 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 somebody from Japan has flown to New York City, waited in line at the original Shake Shack, and then they hear we're opening, we want to make sure that person's hopes and dreams of getting a real Shake Shack, just as they know from New York City, are delivered. But at the same time, like we do in Detroit, we also want to find people that we admire locally, that if we lived in that city, these are the people we would go eat at and hang out with because we love their, what they do. It does take a lot of time. But that said, I'm happy to say that we do have a lot of new cities we're opening in America this year, but not internationally. So I probably will have more of a normal life. Cool. So internationally, so you're using, you're working out the supplier and the distribution, um, but you're, the burgers are consistent though you're still you're you're seeking a consistent flavor profile in the burgers you're just working with local distributors and suppliers absolutely um for instance when we opened in london we did have the option of shipping our beef over to london but we said why would we do that because we use angus cattle and the the the, the, the uh the lineage is coming from scotland and we're right there in the uk we're like well, why don't we just go up to scotland and source the cattle the same way we did back in the states by visiting different ranches, finding really great people, raising amazing livestock, find a great butcher. Um, in, in London, we actually used the Royal Butcher, which is kind of fun. Um, but that's what we do. We try to set up the same exact handcrafted Shake Shack that we did when we opened the original one. Say, this is the only one we have in our world. How would we do it? We would localize everything on the menu. So there is a lot of that. And at the end of the day, we don't really want the burger to taste too differently, but we also understand that um, Scottish cattle, it's going to have slightly different flavor p- profile, slightly different diet, and we're cool with that. As long as our burger tastes 95% the way as it does in New York, that other 5% is like the beauty of the local ingredient, mm. and we're, we're fine with that. That's, that's part of it. So if I can, you guys are a publicly traded company, and you, yes. and you operate every single location? No, we actually have partners in uh, different countries. Okay. So everything, everything here domestically, we privately own, except we have a couple locations in uh, stadiums or in airports or train stations. But everything else here, uh, we, we privately own. I see. Interesting. And so there's no, so it's it's almost a franchisee out of country, but in country it's not. Exactly. Exactly. We license uh, Shake Shack uh, internationally. And what's great about that is we are in complete contact with our partners all the time and make regular trips out there because at the end of the day, we want to make sure the same fun that we have when we're in New York City or in Detroit or in Los Angeles or in Chicago, that they're having that out there too. We like to go and and do collaborations with chefs we admire um, on local scales and also sometimes on international scales. Uh, I think probably one of the highlights of my career is we did a burger with – the number one restaurant in the world, uh, Osteria Francescana, and their chef Massimo Batura two years ago. And uh, that was something very, very fun for us. But he he had reached out and said, hey, I, I, I admire you guys. I'd love to create a burger for you. And that's something that we did in New York City. And then we actually took it to London, too, because we wanted to have all of our other Shake Shacks outside of the country kind of experience the same fun that happens to us a lot here in the States. And the other day, it's kind of a lot of that 
Um, while our, our menu is somewhat static and, you know, our burgers and our hot dogs are always going to be very iconic, we like to have fun and play around with different, like, fans of ours and do something very unique for our fans. That's great. Uh, hopefully, Mark, hopefully in Detroit we'll be able to do that maybe after uh, our Shake Shack opens. Um, so I, I have uh, a question about the, the idea of uh, enlightened hospitality um, and the, the kind of delivery uh, of, of the product to the customer. How, how, do you, how do you convey that in the back of the house um, to, 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 to your people back, back there? Well, how we, how we approach it um, is we, we let our employees know that there's two different sides to that, that there's the service part, which you mentioned, which is if someone comes in, you take their order, the person in the back cooks the burger, and then another person gives them the bag. That's the service part, and that, that has to be done very well, too. If your burger's not cooked well or your order's wrong in the wrong way, that could possibly be in the back of your mind. You may not want to return the next time you go to a Shake Shack if, if you don't hit that right. But to us, the real most important part is making sure when the person comes in, they're greeted warmly. The person cooking their burgers is like, you know what? I want to make sure every burger that I cook on this grill today is absolutely perfectly seasoned. I'm, I'm hitting my medium pink temperatures. And then when you actually get your burger at the end, the person reads back your order and then maybe even notices that you're wearing a sweater and says, hey, is it cold outside? Oh, I hope you stay warm. Uh, you know, by the way, we also have hot chocolate and coffee next time you want to come back. It, it's kind of going a little bit further than just the actual delivery of the food. It's trying to be on that person's side and, and reading them and seeing what else they can do to make that experience a little more special for them. And that's something that uh, in our world, it, it's very hard to train that part. We always try to find people that are curiously intelligent, naturally warm, people that just really want to make sure people have a great experience. And that to us is kind of the building blocks of great hospitality. And it's something that once we hire our team, we spend a lot of time talking about online hospitality and just that being aware of the person you're dealing with and trying to find out what else you can do. Um, I remember uh, when I first took the job for Shake Shack uh, 10 years ago, I, uh, I had been there a few times before, but I wanted to go before I actually started to train as a manager and do the full experience. I had the burgers, but I wanted the milkshakes. I wanted to do like a, a Chicago-style hot dog and really try to delve into the menu. And as I'm ordering all this food, the cashier's like, wait a minute, this is a pretty big order. Have you, have you been to a Shake Shack before? I'm like, I have, but just the burgers. He goes, so you haven't had the frozen custard, the milkshakes, the hot dogs. I'm like, no. He goes, oh, he goes, you got to try the black and white. He goes, it's my absolute favorite. It's a mixture of vanilla and chocolate. You can taste, you can taste both of them harmoniously. It's perfect. It's extra frosty. He's like, if you like, we have malt too. He's like, it's so delicious with the malt and the hot dogs. I love the Chicago-style hot dog, but it's a little spicy. If you like spice, go for it. If not, take out the peppers. I can do that for you. And I felt like the cashier was my best friend taking me to his favorite restaurant. He's on my side. He wants to make sure I get a great meal. And I'll never forget that experience. Of course, the food was great. And the guy actually came out afterwards and noticed me. He goes, hey, what did you think of that Chicago dog? I'm like, you know, you're right. It was spicy. Next time, I will take those peppers out. But thank you for the malt suggestion here because this is perfect. And that's, that's kind of what in our world in line hospitality is. It's not just taking a person's order and giving them their food. It's trying to give them so much more in that experience. 
to make it more meaningful, if we do it right at the end of the day, the guests will leave a little happier than when they arrived. That's awesome. Phenomenal. Yeah. Bravo. <laughs> Mark, thanks for talking with us, uh, taking time out of your schedule. We wish you the best of luck in Detroit. You've got three it's ardent, ardent supporters here. So, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, it's my absolute pleasure. And, um, I was telling my team today that my, my, there's a city every year that we open that is just so exciting all around for us. And it definitely is this year, Detroit. Um, we could not be more excited. I think it's a beautiful location. I think it's centrally located. So hopefully it'll be very easy for a lot of people to get to us and experience us. And, and we're ready to cook for everyone that comes down. Awesome. Thanks, Mark. Talk Thank to you, you next time. Have a great evening. Thank you. Take care. I and welcome back to Herd, your food, beverage, and hospitality podcast. Uh, we'd like to thank Mark Rosati again for being on, uh, the Shake Shack Culinary Director. Um, as we said, Shake Shack opens Thursday, February 23rd uh, in the First National Building in Detroit. Great spot. Check it out. Um, they have malts, apparently. News to me. It's going to be like 65 degrees. 65 degrees. Get burgers. your burger on. Burger Ooh. weather. They also have booze. spring break burger. There's yeah, they booze. have they have um, Brooklyn Lager. Brooklyn uh, made them a some Sh- sort of Shakemeister Shack- ale. Shackmeister. Shackmeister. Yep, ale. and they have something from Sheboygan on shorts and Cl- Griffin Claw. Cool. They have some wine on tap. They too. weren't serving it today. I tried. Yeah. No, I didn't even ask. I, I my... settled for the salted caramel shake, and it was pretty fantastic. Deep, deep, pretty good. Deep, deep, yeah, the good. chocolate shake was good too. So was the concrete. It was dad bod certified. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, you got to get my dad bod ready for spring. Boom. Uh, sp- speaking of uh, of dad bods, next week is Fat Tuesday. Uh, next week we talk about, and probably eat, to be honest, poonchkis. Mm. Um, and uh, what else can we talk about on Fat Tuesday? Who knows? It'll be booze related because Lent's happening and then, you know, we're right. all going to give up drinking, right? Of course. Of course. Right. You can't see it, but my fingers are crossed. <laughs> Amen. Guys, thanks for listening. Uh, We'll see you next time on Herd.